0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Matt as well. For those of you who haven't met before, And it's a joy to be able to open up the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, We are continuing through in our series through the Bible in a year. And we're taking a couple weeks. I think I'm a little loud, but I'll I'll start. I could just yell at everybody. No, I won't do that. Um, If we're continuing on in our series through the Bible, uh, and we're spending a couple weeks in the book of Isaiah. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58. I said on the slide, we're going to start in verse 3, but it's very, um, I'm going to start earlier. I had a really hard time writing the teaching for this week. I uh, rewrote it like three or four times and uh, was up this morning and really couldn't figure out what what uh, God might be saying to us. And hopefully, uh, by the end of it, God speaks to every one of us and uh, through it, I hope you'll see that, I mean, it's a very personal thing for me as I think about Uh, what God might be saying uh, through the prophets to us. So if you have Isaiah open, we're going to read chapter 58, starting in verse 1. Uh, Let's pray before we read. Lord, we come before you this morning, and we hold in our hands, or we're about to hear words that were spoken and written down thousands of years ago uh, to people in a different place with a different context and all sorts of differences from us. But there's a reality in which you speak to us through the text, uh, in the here and now. Something that you have here is for us. And so I pray that you would speak to us in and through it and by your Spirit. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Isaiah 58, if you're unfamiliar with the passage, it's uh, famous in my mind because it's just this scathing critique of God's people. Uh, The nation of Israel has been... uh, They've, they've kind of thrown themselves into uh, idolatry. They have created a kingdom. They've followed after God. They, they they established a kingdom, but pretty quickly, the whole thing starts to break apart. And so God sends these prophets to warn them, hey, if you continue down this path, this is what's going to happen. If you continue doing what you're doing, this is what's going to happen. And what we're going to read is one of those critiques, and one that I think captures Uh, uh, some of the worst of the stuff that goes on. So Isaiah 58, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. They, they're going through their right religious activities. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? They're even fasting. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to turn away and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. The nation of Israel is fasting, they're going to the temple, they're worshiping, they're doing all the right religious stuff. And yet, God rejects what they're doing in essence, because their hearts are far from him. They're, they're committing all sorts of injustice. And I'd love to be able to say that as we read this passage today, it, it like totally doesn't describe what, what we experience. Like We've never done anything like that, thank God. Uh, but I would be lying if I said that there's not at least some of that that I read and go, wow, we're, we're probably guilty of that stuff too, at least in some way, shape, or form. It's not like we have zero problem with any of it. There are critiques here in Isaiah 58 that we need to hear. Just like God's people thousands of years ago needed to hear it, we need to hear it too. And we've, we've taught on that in the past. But Isaiah 58 doesn't happen in a vacuum. So God's critique of the nation of Israel, even their injustice, it doesn't just start happening out of nowhere. It comes from somewhere. If you read back in Isaiah 57, Idolatry is actually what leads to the injustice. In verse 4, God says, Who are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines. These are actually all statements about worship of other gods and how they worshipped gods like Molech, and Dagon, and Baal, and Asherah. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. You skip down to verse 8. Behind your doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols, forsaking me. You uncovered your bed, you climbed into it, and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. You went to Molech, who's this other ancient Near Eastern God, with olive oil and increased your perfumes. The imagery, it might be weird for us, but it's this imagery of breaking a marriage covenant. God describes Israel like a spouse who has been unfaithful to him. Uh, You can read in the prophet Hosea, and Hosea, really the whole message of the story is... Hosea is a prophet, but more than just speaking the words of God, he's actually meant to enact it through his actions. So God asks him to go and marry a promiscuous woman and then have children from this woman who's going to commit adultery. And then he names his children these like ridiculous names, like not my people and you're not Loved." He enacts what Israel has done to God in their unfaithfulness by worshiping these other gods. And by worshiping these other gods, this idolatry, that's what leads to the injustice. Because we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. So Israel, they have broke their covenant. They sleep around, so to speak, with Dagon, with Molech, with Baal, with Asherah. Uh, They commit child sacrifice, which I would say is probably a pretty unjust act. Uh, they, they sleep with temple prostitutes in their worship of Asherah. Uh, they exploit their workers in the, the pursuit of power and in the worship of these gods. They lie because, well, you have to lie in order to keep up this appearance that you're going to worship the creator god and all these other gods at the same time. They, they, they worship these gods. And what happens over time is that the sin, it starts to warp and twist and corrupt who they are. Uh, they live this double life more and more, and then it becomes easier and easier over time. And, and compassion and service, that becomes less and less common because they're not worshiping the compassionate and gracious God. It, it just becomes less and less the case. And, and so people stop sacrificing their own good for the sake of others. They start looking out only for themselves. Nothing like you or I. When I was uh, trying to read through and pray through for this Sunday, I randomly flipped uh, to 2 Kings chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and randomly flip to 2 Kings chapter 17. And I found there uh, an old highlight that I had. I don't always highlight the Bible when I read through it, but sometimes I do. And I found an old highlight there that uh, really, in my mind, captures this idea really well. I mean, Second Kings 17, it's, it's an overview of what happens in the nation of Israel and, and why Judah and Israel, they're two kingdoms. They, they start fighting one another. It's kind of like north and south, a civil war. They, they split up, and God hands them over to foreign nations to go into exile. And in verse 7, it starts and says, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. If you read through Kings and Chronicles, it's a really depressing story because there's like one good king and then like six or seven bad kings. We pick up in verse 13, uh, God essentially saying, hey, I have told you, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. I sent the messengers to you. I made it really clear. You agreed to it, but they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. And that was the highlight I came across. They worshipped, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. At the end of the day, it is not what people say they believe, it's not the actions that they do on the outside, but it's what they worship, what they love, that shapes them. And that's what I mean when I say we become like what we worship. We can say until we're blue in the face that we believe something. And we can be like the Israelites in Isaiah 58. We can go through the fasting and prayer. We can raise our hands. We can do all this stuff. Good things in and of themselves. But it's our worship, our love. It's directed somewhere. And that is actually what shapes us. Uh, G.K. Beale says it this way. What people revere, they resemble. Either for ruin or for restoration. And you can tell he's a preacher because he uses, like, the alliteration of ours. But it works, and it makes sense. What people revere, they resemble. If you think back through what we read, that's how we get the problems that the prophets talk about. It's because the people have revered the wrong things. They've worshipped the wrong things, and it's led to their ruin. But like I said, it's not something that they did thousands of years ago. It's something that you and I do as well. N.T. Wright is one of our favorite authors. And after reading G.K. Beale and then N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis, I, make, I kind of think that if I ever need to be an author, I really need to come up with like a two-letter acronym for the beginning of my name. But N.T. Wright says it this way. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship, What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it, and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers, rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. Oftentimes, we think that God is the cosmic killjoy out there. He doesn't want us to have fun. He doesn't want us to do the things that we enjoy. He doesn't want us to have the pleasures that we want. So we should just kind of follow the rules. Or at least that's what many of us uh, are led to believe because of the, the dominant narrative about God. And there's really nothing new under the sun. That is the lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. Hey, Decide for yourself. God's holding out on you. That fruit's not bad. Don't believe him. You decide for yourself. It's not new. So when God tells Israel, have no other gods before me, oh, come on, God. Like, what's the big deal with a little like Molech worship on the side? Or, or what's the big deal if you know, we have a little Asherah worship over here? We'll just build a temple somewhere else and we'll do that. Or I'll oh, just worship money over here. Why not? Why, why is that such a big deal? Well, because over time, what happens is those things start to shape and mold us. They, they change us. And if we're not oriented towards God, if our worship isn't directed towards him, it doesn't lead us towards restoration, it leads us towards ruin. Now, in terms of describing worship of, of money or sex or power, I don't think I could do a better job than N.T. Wright. I think that really adequately captures it. I read through that quote. And I think, yeah, I, I, have that, I have found myself there. I have done that. I think it's really, really accurate and captures it. And it's interesting to me that throughout generations, those are three things that time and time again are things that people worship. Those are not new things that, that in 2018 and 2019 that we just started to worship. No, it's been going on for generations. It's part of the human condition but something that might be more specific to our time and place, to the US, or even to my generation. I have to be careful about using my generation now because I'm 29, and I usually capture like young people in my generation, I think I can do that for like another year. Uh, Because even the high school students that I've interacted with as a substitute teacher, which is very different. Young people these days, no, I can't say that either. (laughs) Us. We have the tendency to worship the self. As I was praying this morning, uh, I had written all kinds of other things and, and I just came back to this idea that we, we really, we worship the self in so many ways. And we put ourselves in an inappropriate place and we kinda reorder the cosmos around ourselves, right? So you all become like uh, actors in the play where I'm the star. And so what matters to me is how you view me. Like if I stand up here and they think, oh, he's smart, he's funny, at least half of you laugh at my jokes, then I feel good because I can reorient the world around myself as if it exists to serve me. And what I do then, uh, for those who serve my purpose and for those who actually uh, give me the the response that I want and letting me be the center of the universe, at least in my own head, is I manipulate things in order to get those people around me more and more. I alienate people who don't do that, but people who can, who can feed my ego, I, I, I manipulate to get that more. And if you don't do it, I kind of ignore you, or I push, push away. And so I was, I was trying to write all of this out, and I was trying to think of how many ways could I, could I think of that this plays out? I mean, it plays out in dozens of ways. And I can think about from my personal experience, and maybe you can too, and I think I'm going to share at least one. Uh, But like I said, I I have this tendency of of viewing other people as orbiting around me, and maybe I'm the only person like that. And and the words that came to me as I was thinking about that, that I, I think are for us, is not so much just the message to just say, stop it. There's this funny mad TV skit uh, where there's a, a therapist and he says, "Oh, it's going to be a really short session. I would only charge uh, what is it, like ten dollars a minute?" We watched it together. And he says, "I promise you, it'll be a very short counseling session." And she says, "Are you sure? I have I have a lot of baggage." He said, "Okay, that's fine. Just I mean, I I take the payment on the up front." And it, you know, it's a Mad TV skit. So she starts sharing all this stuff, all this baggage about her her family life and how she was traumatized as a child and how it makes her afraid of going on an airplane, I think it is. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to give you some advice. Stop it. Just stop it. Just stop being afraid of it. Just stop it. And and oftentimes, I think, when we approach, uh, really, uh, sermons on idolatry, that's really the end message. It's just stop it. Just stop doing it. More than just stop doing it, we don't deserve the weight of it you don't deserve the weight of having to maintain the image in order to keep yourself in that spot. Because what, what what I mean is you have to keep up a facade, you have to keep up an image to bolster yourself enough to be worthy of that sort of worship, and deep down, you know you're not. I mean, deep down, you know that you are not worthy of worship. Deep down, I know that about myself. And so what the tendency is, is to create this fake image that I present to other people so that I can keep myself in the center. But it doesn't stand up and it's hard to keep up the image and it keeps people at a distance. And so we believe that we have to lie because if we didn't lie, then people would see the real truth. I'm unacceptable, I'm unlovable. And so what happens is we keep up the lie, we keep doing it, and the system consumes itself. We weave such a a crazy web that's hard to untangle, and we think, how did we even get here? How did I even get to a place where this happened? And maybe the idol is not the self. Uh, Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's it's money, sex, and power. Uh, Maybe it's this, I I think it is a worship of self, but this idea that hey, I have, to, um, I have to have like a personal brand. Like I have to have between my Instagram, my, my Twitch, my Twitter, my Insta stories, my Snapchat, I'm missing a couple. I have to have a personal brand. I have to keep it up. I have to present this image. I, I think that comes back to this, what we have to present to other people because we want to be acceptable and we want to be lovable. We want to have the affirmation from other people. We want to be worthy. And, and it's a long step down the road to get there. But I think it, at the end of it, what I'm confronted by is Jesus' words, if you want to find your life, lose it. Sounds like the exact opposite of my tendency. If you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross, die to yourself and follow me not very much concerned about self-preservation and when we think about how the rubber meets the road how idolatry might lead to injustice we talked about isaiah 57 to 58 if other people just exist to serve or contribute to my quality of life well it's easy to see how injustice flows from that how do i treat children well they're kind of an annoyance right i mean they don't do anything for me Uh, How do we treat the elderly? They're pushed away into retirement homes where someone else can deal with them. Uh, What about people with disabilities? We either view them as as like a drag on society and and we do everything possible to keep them from ever being born, or we just ignore them and mistreat them. And the same is true for the the other classes that, that Scripture tells us to protect, the poor, the destitute, the orphan, the widow. All those classes of people that God wants us to care for well, they don't really contribute anything to me. So I push them to the side or I ignore them or I exploit them because I could get something out of them. It, it, our idolatry, our worship of self, it, it can shape us in so many ways that really lead to really clear examples of injustice, just like in Isaiah 58. The good news, though, is that God has so much more in store for us, so much more for us, You don't have to be the one in the center. You don't have to be the one who's worshipped. You don't have to keep it up. That fear that you have of being unacceptable and unlovable, you don't have to worry about that. We, We have this tendency to want to keep up that image, right? Because we seek the validation. And I think a lot of us, it's because we we don't believe that God actually does love us or accept us. Uh, we think, it—we actually what it is, at least for me, is we believe that other voice that says, God actually knows all of it, and you're unlovable. You're unacceptable. That, that can't be you maybe for everyone else, like Megan shared a couple weeks ago, maybe it's for everyone else, but it's definitely not for you. The reminder this morning is that God made you, God sustains you, and God actually does know all of it, and God actually does love you enough to die on a cross for you, even knowing all of it. And the fear that we have of one another, it's not necessary. I mean, it's kind of normal and natural. But if we want to move forward as being a family, we can't have it. We, we can't be afraid of one another. We can't be afraid of what one another think of us. We can't be afraid to think, oh my gosh, the way that I express my spirituality and worship is different than other people. But I, I have to fake it until it's there. What that does is it actually just continues to create walls between us. In July... Uh, my wife and I are moving to Ecuador. And we're going to work at international school. And so um, part of uh, the teaching this Sunday uh, was meant to be one of my last two opportunities to kind of share with the church and really did not think, hey, this would be, uh, you know, parting words of stuff that I think is really important before I leave. Uh, for those of you who know, uh, we've been a part of the church from the very beginning. We started with uh, Sunday morning uh, worship in the park and before that we had been gathering in our apartment just to pray together and some of you were there and as I think about the last couple years and and leaving and I think about a couple things that I want to share uh, one of them is just around this we have to think of how to even formulate it because it's not even clear in my mind What can happen on Sunday morning is that Sunday morning becomes this opportunity for me to really, like, not me, but us, individuals, people, you, uh, it can become the opportunity for you to, uh, like, stroke your own ego, right? You come in, you're, you're seeking, I'm not saying this is the case, but this can be the case. You're coming in and you seek, hey, I, I want to feel good, I want to have a positive experience, uh, and I want to leave, like, with a smile on my face. That, that can happen. And uh, although we would all say we believe that that's not the purpose of Sunday, the purpose that we come together on Sunday is to worship. We come to worship through song. We come to worship through reading the scriptures together, through giving of tithes and op- offerings, through receiving communion, uh, through prayer. We, we come to worship. That's why we come together. But what it can become is an exercise in serving the self. So did I get something out of it? Did anyone do something for me? It becomes self-directed. And if if one thing uh, that I want to ensure that as we leave and we head to Ecuador and, I don't know, maybe we come back once a year, but as people that we've walked with for years now, we just have to guard ourselves from that. It can easily become a self-seeking endeavor. And this all comes together in my mind through what we prayed about this morning. And Deason kind of shared some of the stuff that came up. Uh, But as I was in the back, as we were uh, singing those first two songs, I'm thinking, okay, how how does this all come together in my mind? We come together to worship. I mean, the point of Sunday is to come together to worship. It, It really is to move ourselves off of that spot of the center of the cosmos it's to move that off and to rightly align ourselves with Jesus as the center. So we spend so much time talking because we want ourselves to, we want to have a healthy picture of who God is because we've got to become more like him. And we spend time singing because in the words that we sing, we, we proclaim truth not only over ourselves but over the people all around us. And, and that's crucial. But when you sing the songs, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about your experience. The church comes together to sing together. We put the words on the screen because we don't want people just having an individual thing going on. We're proclaiming truth over one another. Apathy. If if the risk isn't to become self-serving, the risk is to become apathetic. A story I heard this past week that I aspire to. Uh, it's it, it's like an old enough story that no one really knows the, the origins of it. Um, but the story goes that uh, a guy goes to a monastery. So, so you know, Christian monasteries have existed for thousands of years. They're known as a place where people contemplate and pray. And so a guy goes and says, hey, I, I want to find God and the the monk says no you don't he says yeah no i really i really want i really want to find god he says okay so the monk walks the guy down to the river and he and he um he holds his head underwater and holds his head underwater and holds his head underwater and then he, he lifts his head up and the guy says what, what are you doing He says, as soon as you want God as much as much as you wanted that breath, then you'll find him. As soon as you want God as much as you wanted that breath, then you'll find him. If I'm being honest with this group of people, it is much easier to want other things more. It's much easier to want to put myself in the center and have people worship me more. Or money, or sex, or drugs, or alcohol, or whatever. Power, personal brand. It's a lot easier, but what we do here on Sunday is we reset ourselves. We place God as the center, We ascribe to him worship. I wanted to have a really profound ending. The ending is to sing. I, I told Annie earlier. I said, hey, are we doing this song after? Yeah, we're doing it right after. Okay. So normally what happens on Sunday, uh, we pray, open the tables during the next song. We normally come forward, grab communion, take it after the next song. That's our normal rhythm. Over the next song, I really, uh, I want us to just sing. I-, I want us to worship. Now, that doesn't mean that it all has to look the same for every single person in the room. It would be odd if it did. I mean, if the way that you express worship to the creator God based on the way that he made you, if that was the exact same way that Decent did, that would be weird. I would actually expect that probably to be, like, made up. Uh, Lord knows that Decent and I worship differently. So I would just want us to respond in worship for the next song, which is really a prayer of repentance and faith. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our soul to another. As we sing the words, I, I want it to become a habit of ours not just to say the words because they're on the screens, but to believe them, to proclaim them over ourselves, to proclaim them over the people around us, that we as a church would be able to worship together. Let's pray and then sing. Lord, Lord, You love us. You have accepted us because of the blood of Jesus. It's not because we've been able to muster up enough courage to get you to like us. You have loved us from from before we were even walking around. Before anyone else knew us, you loved us through every moment you've loved us. Worship is simply response. God, we want to respond to you this morning. Help us correct ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.